Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to... Hello, everyone... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 46. If you have been listening to the show for a while, you might, uh, you might remember me saying that my New Year's resolution of 2014 was to become someone who had to go running, which was kind of a joke at the time. And it took six months, and I think it's mostly thanks to my kid that for an hour, I get to go running and I get to be alone. Even if he's up in his stroller, which is all the time because he's my running partner, for that hour, I don't have to worry about him trying to plug in one of his toys or trying to sit on the cat, which is his new favorite thing to do. And it took six months of forcing myself to go every day, unless it was pouring rain. But even in like the sprinkles, I really forced myself to go. And I go, and I go, and I kept going. And this weekend, I'm very excited to say, I ran the entirety of my very first 5K. And I did it in 33 minutes, but what's important is that I did it without stopping, which meant that I tripled my longest running duration ever. Up until that point, I'd only run for a mile. And I ran with my friend Jen, and she was like, don't worry, the, the energy of the race will boo you. And it was completely true, and I finished it. So if you're out there and you are also a runner, I use an app on my phone called Map My Run, and you should friend me. My secret internet identity is Bunny McFly, if you... Uh, troll oprah's website from 1990 it's about approximately then that i decided i was going to be bunny mcfly um but find me on Matt my run and i would love to have you as a friend on the same note if you would do me a favor and run over to itunes or stitcher your podcasting app of choice i would love it if you would take a second to review sharp and hot there are nine reviews right now on itunes and i love that they are all warm and fuzzy there are none on Stitcher, and I would just love it if you took a second. I'd be truly, truly thankful. And after the show today, I'll put up a link on sharpenhot.com and make it easy for you. And thank you. I really appreciate it. So now on to our first guest. I have with me via phone coming from California, Rob the Beekeeper. Rob, your name tells us exactly what you do. Welcome to Sharp and Hot. Hello? Hello, are you there? I hear you. Oh, hi. Let's see if we can... Hi, how are you? I'm excellent. So you are Rob the Beekeeper. You started working with bees as a way to incorporate them into your art. Is that correct? It is. I was working on my master's degree at UC Davis and started incorporating the bees into my art practice as a way to feel objects. And initially I would set up these art objects in galleries and have the bees coming and going through the window of the gallery. So set this up for us. I have an undergraduate degree from a conservatory art school, so I'm right there with you. Set up for us what okay. it is that we are... Are we walking into a gallery space? You're, you're walking into a gallery space, and at the time I was working on Egyptian funerary rites. I'd been in veterinary medicine for 30 years of my life, and 
studying Egyptian funerary rites, and I was making these objects that would go inside of boxes, and I would release a colony of feral bees into the box and then let the bees take over the space. My idea was that they would seal these objects up, and it would be kind of like a living sculpture. And uh, there were tubes that you could see the bees coming and going. I think, uh, well, the only show I did in New York was in Chelsea, but it was three days before 9-11, so it didn't get much attention. Yeah, wow. So how big was the box? They varied depending on the objects inside of them. Most of them were usually pretty small because I wanted to have a dense population of the bees inside the box. So if they were these huge boxes, the um, the bees would be more sparse. So I usually condense the bees down and, you know, um, put them inside of a box, maybe, you know, uh, two by two feet, I guess, something like that. And was the and the box was made out of like lucite or something so that people could see what was happening on the inside. They could see the front of it, so the the, the sides were usually wood, but the front was um, glass. We we tried lucite, but if the um, because the bees keep the internal core of their brood nest at ninety eight degrees, it was always warping the lucite, and the bees were getting out in the gallery. Oh. We had to go back to we had to go back to glass. And do have you done this in other places around the country? Yeah, I think I was showing them in, I was showing them all over the place. I got picked up pretty early, so I was in L.A., Chicago, New York, you know, in the early part of my career. And, um, yeah, I showed them all over. And then you transitioned to having your own Napa Valley Bee Company. How did that transition happen? Um, That was a long time. You know, I, I wasn't really thinking of what I do as a business. I was just... You know, I got out of grad school, got picked up on the exhibiting circuit, and all my friends jumped into teaching positions, right? 9-11 comes along, and I'm still out there showing, but the market kind of fell out, and I couldn't find any work as a teacher, although I, I my long-term goal was always to teach, not be an exhibiting artist. And um, I came back. I, I fell in love with bees almost to the point where I would given up most of the art stuff, and, you know, one of my buddies said, hey, it was really challenging to get work. And he said, because I didn't have any teaching experience, he said, why don't you go down to the college and see if you could teach a beekeeping class? And I did, and it just filled up. And, you know, I teach four or five classes there a year, and they're all filled up. And that was maybe 15 years ago. And this um, is for people who want to start having hives in their backyard? Correct. And... um I started helping people with their bees, and that kind of grew. And then, you know, the next thing you know, I'm helping, you know, a lot of wineries and restaurants. And, you know, it just kept growing and growing. I didn't, I never had an idea. I never put out a business plan or anything. It just kind of fell into place for, you know, someone who was, you know, good at instructing people on how to keep their bees alive. I love it when things like that happen. It's like you real. that's what you were really meant to be doing, something you weren't looking for. Right, exactly. And, you know, I, it felt natural to me, my progression, because, you know, I'd already been working in the natural world. You know, like I said, I'd, I was raised in a veterinary household, so I'd been around animals all my life. So the transition was, you know, fairly seamless, although there's not puppies and kittens. You know, <laughs> we're talking about stinging insects, but it was still good. 
So how do you explain or tell me about the symbiotic relationship between the hives and the wineries and restaurants and how it all sort of fits together? You know, um, what's happening out here, and I'm sure you're seeing a little bit of it on the East Coast as well, is um, this whole idea of farm-to-table. And um, it's getting huge out here, especially in Napa. You know, there's a lot of, you know, three-star restaurants here where they're, um, they have gardens and they're taking the produce straight out of the garden into the, um, either the restaurant or sometimes the wineries have restaurants in them. So it, it was pretty, um, you know, it was a perfect fit. I just started meeting people who were wanted bees, and, you know, the, the, the bees don't work the grapes, which everyone thinks, like, oh, the, the bees will be working the grapes. They need the bees for the vineyard, but they don't. It tends to be more people who um, want them for pollination, and they, there's a direct correlation between having a colony of bees in the immediate vicinity of your garden and, you know, it could sometimes double, if not triple, your harvest. So it, people just started wanting more and more bees. It was a natural fit. And, you know, I've gotten to a place now where I can't take any more people because I've got so many, you know, I'm running around crazy <laughs> managing people's bees. I actually have a, <clears throat> this is sort of a funny full circle i have a guy i grew up raising bees my parents keep bees my uh they have a sort of honey csa on the east end of long island because for the same Uh reason people want restaurants want the farm to table wineries like to have them and it's also a little bit of a status symbol here i don't know if that's true out Uh there but for people to say like oh i have a beehive um so we were approached oh yeah now i live in new jersey and we were approached by um a man who manages other people's hives and he really wanted to put a hive on our property because we have a lot of space and at first I was like oh I really wanted to be the one to do it but my husband was like look we, d- we have a kid we don't have a lot of time to focus on it let's just let him do it now it's amazing he does the lion's share of the work we can be as participatory as we want and then every once in a while I go to my back porch and there's a box full of honey jars which is the perfect uh, the perfect gift for me without having to do a lot of the work and his name is Bob Keller no way. Yeah. Quit it. You're just saying that for I the show. I swear I pointed it out to my husband last night. I was like, I have a beekeeper on tomorrow. You're never going to guess what his name is. <laughs> <laughs> How funny. Isn't you got to hook us up. I will totally Even hook if you we up. Just share, let's share um, business cards, man. I got to have a Bob Keller business card. You totally <laughs> do. You need What you need is a Bob Keller mustache, which is waxed into a perfect handlebar with beeswax, but it's not hipster ironic because he is too old to realize that he's being a hipster. <laughs> oh, wow, how funny. So, I'm not quite there yet. But, <laughs> yeah, we, we see a lot of that here as well. You know, um, well, right now, as we speak, there's a group of beekeepers here with a guy named Sam Comfort, who's back from your neck of the woods, and we're doing, we call him a hive dive, but, you know, we do workshops and, you know, we're... At my house, although I have a very small property, I wish I had a bigger property, but we just got bees legalized in the um, city of Napa. So I can have people back to my house now and have some of these big bee players come out and, you know, do workshops and show people how they manage bees. So how important is it to build a local beekeeping community? Oh, it's huge. It's so big, especially, like you're saying, everyone's getting into bees now, and, you know... We fought for probably half a decade to get these bees legalized in the city limits, 
And at the time, we, it felt like the right thing to do. And in, in essence, it is. But what happened is we're concentrating only on local adapted stock. And once we opened that floodgate, everybody started wanting to get bees, and we couldn't keep up with keeping them stocked with local bees. So now they're bringing in bees all willy-nilly from all over the country, and it's really diluting our local genetics. So I think that having a strong community of beekeepers that are all on the same page, they're all studying treatment-free methods to hive management and, you know, concentrating solely on locally adapted stock is huge. So I think what's going to end up happening is that the backyard beekeepers, like, the other Bob Keller and myself who are doing this in backyards are going to be the ones who survive the species. Right. So what, is, what do you mean exactly when you say local genetics as opposed to thinking that a honeybee is a honeybee? Well, when you talk about our local genetics, and we always talk about this idea that the, um, if there's no silver bullet. Everybody's out there looking for a silver bullet for whatever it is that's killing the bees, but... I'm finding that that silver bullet's in our own backyard, meaning we're isolating the best genetic stock we can get, and then we breed from those queens and hopefully pass on those stronger genetics. And because of the amount of colonies I'm managing up and down the valley, we disseminate those stronger genetics throughout Napa Valley, trying to help people, you know, strengthen the, their local community of bees. And are you seeing that the species that are being mail-ordered from Connecticut or whatever and sent out to Napa are not faring as well as the locally adapted varieties? Oh, yeah. What does a bee from Connecticut know about our environment? You know, I, I just spent, you know, a month over on Maui working with a queen breeder there, and I'm getting ready to pack up and go. And he's like, okay, man, how many queens do you want? I'm like, I don't want any of your queens. <laughs> you know, what does a Maui queen know about Napa? Right. What I'm starting to see in these kind of bees as we call them mutts, you know, like a dog at the pound or something, is that those bees aren't recognizing the environmental clues it takes for them to prepare themselves for winter. So we're having higher die-offs because these bees are being brought in. Those drones are mating with our queens, and there's a, in that genetic shuffle, there's a disconnect on these bees being able to understand what it takes to prepare themselves for winter and then them not storing their provisions properly. And I think this is something, yeah, I mean, that people don't even think about when you decide, hey, let's keep a hive of bees. The first place you turn is the Internet, and the first link you probably see if you Google backyard beekeeping is whatever advertiser could afford the top banner to order your bees here and not recognize the importance of getting them from your local environment. So how are you working uh-huh. with Barn Razor? Tell us about your Barn Razor project. So Barn Razor was really interesting. I started doing this queen rearing project, and I've always been very, um, you know, deeply rooted in my community of beekeepers. I've been teaching beekeeping here. And Eileen Curello came to me and said, um, hey, Rob, I got this new project I'm doing. You ever heard of this thing called Kickstarter? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. She said, I'm going to one-up them in that I'm going to do... Uh, a kind of platform based on Kickstarter, but it's going to be all about community and ag. Why don't you come up with a project that you think would be beneficial and let's get you some cake? And I'm like, okay, sounds good to me. You know, (laughs) I'd already been kind of looking very seriously at queen breeding, 
and I said, let's uh, let's set up a premier queen breeding facility, you know, in this local CSA organic farm, and um, about three miles out of Napa, and see if we can get the infrastructure to set up what we're calling the bee exchange. And what we want to do is bring some of these beekeepers in Napa, established beekeepers who have, you know, uh, proven stock, and um, you know put them with beekeepers that are just starting their apiaries. So instead of them jumping on the Google and getting the guy who has the biggest banner, we'll be able to say, hey, we have locally proven stock. It came from this uh, particular apiary. It's close to your place. We're, we're really starting to micromanage even keeping bees in Napa. You know, we'll, We don't bring bees from the Carneros, which is probably 25 miles away, to Calistoga. We really try and keep the Carneros bees in the Carneros and Calistoga really separating it out. So I and, was, and know, as a result, they'll be tapped into a network of people that they can turn to when things go off the rails, which they are bound to do if you're just getting started out in any sort of ag. Uh, I mean, I just, I think of my father, you know, every spring looking into the beehive and trying to figure out where all the bees went. So to have this yeah, like network exactly. of people to, around you, I think, is really helpful. I'm going to put up a link on sharpenhot.com, and that will be a place where people can then jump over to your barn raiser and kick you some money. And I love this project, and your passion is very, very obvious. And thank you so much for coming on Sharp and Hot. Oh, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. After the break, we are going to have an interview with Dr. David Kesseret. I want to set this up for you because when we come back, we're going to go straight into the interview. But if you don't know this about me already, I'm fascinated um, with death and dying. And I talk about that a little bit at the top of the interview, so I won't repeat myself. But he's written a book called Shocked, which is the science around resuscitation and what does it mean to be recently deceased and how far can science push the science of bringing or how far can science push bringing people back to life and the ethics around that and we bring it around to food at the end and it's a very very cool uh interview with dr david kesseret right after the break This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com.
morning, Dr. David Kastorat. Welcome to Sharp and Hot. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. I have to tell you, when I was a little kid, my mother had a book called Sleeping Beauty on the bookshelf that I was forbidden from looking at, which, of course, meant that that's the only book that I was interested in. And it was um, daguerreotypes of recently deceased loved ones from the 1800s and early days of photography. And when I got your book... I was like brought back to the origins of my fascination with death and dying. And I'm just so excited to have you on the show. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. So your book opens with the story of a little girl who is dead, right? And I guess maybe we should start with what's the definition of dead and how do we resuscitate somebody? Let's start there. Of this book is, is being about trying to figure out what that definition is uh, and how it's changing. Um, so the story you're talking about is, is uh, that of Michelle Funk, who's a, a two-and-a-half-year-old girl. Um, she was two-and-a-half when she uh, fell into a creek outside of Salt Lake City in Utah and drowned and spent an hour or so underwater. Rescuers pulled her out and tried to restart her heart for another two hours. So a total of three hours where she was not breathing, had no signs of life, had no heartbeat, and then they brought her back to life. Um, and uh, she had a rocky course, not surprisingly, but eventually went home, did well. Uh, I heard got married a couple of years ago, so congratulations to her and her husband. Um, and that story really opened a lot of people's eyes about the definition of death. Most people would say, well, you know, not breathing, no sign of life, no heartbeat for an hour, two hours, three hours. That's pretty dead. But then Michelle Funk comes along and people say, well, maybe it's four hours, maybe it's five. And that's sort of where you get your start, right? I love your reference to um, to MASH and Doogie Howser, which gave away that you and I are about the same age because I loved MASH as a kid for exactly the same reasons that you could just – bring someone back to life in this very tidy manner. It's true, although um, MASH was interesting because um, at least the stories I remember from MASH, people did die. There were a lot of survivals, but people did die. Unlike most resuscitation attempts on television where everybody lives, if you're going to have a cardiac arrest, um, the place to do it is on a television show as a character (laughs) because those people do really, really well, much, much better than they do in real life. And so now you work in a hospice, correct? And what brought you to write this book? Well, I have a, a couple of hats. Uh, so I run the, uh, the palliative care um, program and at the University of Pennsylvania Health System, and I'm the chief medical officer of our hospice, and I, I take care of patients near the end of life. That's what I, that's what I do. And um, I really I, I wanted to, to kind of get back in my mind to that story about Michelle Funk. Um, her story, when I heard about it on my way to medical school, made me excited about what medic medicine could do to, to prolong life and to bring people back from the dead. I thought initially I, I wanted to be an emergency room doc, um, clearly going from the ER to hospice. I've strayed a little bit. <laughs> um, but I wanted to get some of that back, and I wanted to see now um, what's possible. The patients I see are all very near the end of life. They want to focus on comfort care. But this was an experiment for me in a way. I wanted to see, well, you know, what, what's, what's possible? What could immortality look like? What's, what's science doing now? And what might science uh, help us to, to achieve in 5, 10, 20 years? And you talk about the moral questions that come along with that. Like, is it even a good idea? When I had my son, 
I didn't realize I was going to have to sign a pretty substantial document about what my husband should do in case of things taking a bad turn. And it was really emotional because, you know, you're going to have a baby and then you have to consider, like, what would it mean to try to keep somebody alive? Right. Well, I'm sure it was emotionally difficult, but I'm glad you signed that document because uh, some of the most difficult challenges we face as palliative care physicians is taking care of patients who have not made their wishes clear. Um, Nobody knows what treatment they want or don't want. Nobody even knows who that person wants to make decisions for them. Um, And a lot of the the ethical conundrums about the end of life are ones that we create because we take patients into surgery without having an advanced directive or a living will, um, without having these sorts of of discussions. So they are very difficult and they're uh, emotionally difficult, ethically difficult, um, but you can cut through a lot of that difficulty if you just have some of these conversations um, and document your preferences as as you did, fortunately. Fortunately, you Nope, (laughs) I made it through. (laughs) Do people ever talk about food at the end of their life? I I think that the saddest thing for the end of my life will be not being able to eat and drink anymore. Yeah, it comes up in in several different ways. Um, uh, One of my favorite is uh, when we're taking care of, of patients who, for health reasons, have been on a variety of dietary restrictions, so heart failure, can't eat anything that's that's faulty. Um, yeah, people with diabetes have been kept on a, a strict diabetic diet. Um, and often when they come to us in hospice or sometimes even before, it's really a relief for us to be able to tell them, look, you know, I know you've been watching your salt intake and watching your high blood pressure um, for the last five or six years, um, but, you know, your cancer is going to kill you far quicker than uh, heart disease is going to. So, you know, those Doritos, or hopefully something better, go for it. What is the reaction you get? People must be like, oh my God, what, how could I, I a sliver of good news? <laughs> it is, although um, physicians have gotten really, really good at, at guilt-tripping patients uh, <laughs> into avoiding things that they love. And so there are certainly patients I've taken care of whose physicians have so effectively hardwired them to avoid salt or anything bad um, uh, that uh, it's actually it's actually kind of scary for them to have a potato chip. Um, others, I think, uh, take to it and are fine. I have a, my grandmother is just turned 100 recently. Um, and fairly recently, um, maybe the last five or ten years, uh, it's, it's become clear to her that, you know, when you make it to 90, 95, um, whatever diet you're on, whatever it was, seems to be working. And um, we still have these conversations with her about, you know, and it's okay for you to have some extra chocolate after dinner. It's okay. You don't have to worry about weight gain. You don't have to worry about your cholesterol. Right. (laughs) Enjoy. Enjoy the last moments of your life, and hopefully that it has been a wonderful one. Dr. Kasserat, I have to leave it there. You are the author of Shocked Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead. It's very, very funny, and I highly recommend it, and thank you so much for coming on with me today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Welcome back. This is Emily in Real Life. Julia Child ate butter until the very end, (laughs) and she lived a long and happy life. 
Okay, on next week's show, I have with me Danny Grossman, the man behind Slow Food, Fast Lives, and filmmaker Erin Bagwell will be here to talk about her inspiring new documentary called Dream Girl. I want to say thank you to Craft Coffee, the official Craft Coffee. <clears throat> Craft Coffee is the official sponsor of Sharp and Hot. Go to craftcoffee.com, pick a subscription that works for you. You will have delicious coffee ground or whole bean as you prefer delivered to your door every month use the code sharp at checkout and they will give you 10 percent off of your order go to itunes or stitcher and leave a review for the show tell me what you think tell me that you like it more importantly tell other people who are considering whether or not they should listen why they should and until next week keep playing with fire and knives and i'm going to watch my favorite movie the birdcage Sharp and hot with Chef Family. Sharp and hot with Chef Family. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.